beautiful choir, and all the people of God said, I thank God for a choir that prepares the hearts of my people. This is a real joy to me as a pastor. I was thinking this morning, and this is not my message, but I couldn't help but think this morning, that this is a very, very rare church. And I'd like to give you some idea of why it's a rare church. I'm going to ask if every man and every young man would rise to their feet at this time. Every man and every young man. I want you to stand. I want to see. I want you to see. You see what I mean? This is a very rare church. You may be seated. I believe that where men are touched by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the women certainly in their hearts are tremendously blessed. What more blessed thing is it than to have a husband or a father or a son who is following Christ? And I tell you, as I look out at the congregation on Sundays and I see all you men and young men, and I love all you women and you young girls too, but it's just a thrill to my heart to see so many men whose hearts have been touched by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I praise God for it. Now, to some, their, <coughs> pardon me, their sons and their husbands may not have been with them this morning. And maybe some of you are praying that your husbands or your sons will come. Well, you be faithful. And let's believe together that God is going to do it. I think if you could even speak to the loved ones at home who don't come and and say to them, uh, if you ever realize the number of men, you know, most churches you go into, most people will say, oh, it's crowded with women. As though to say, you know, that, uh, isn't it terrible, it's just crowded with women. Well, I want to say, I praise God for the women. What would we do in any church without the joy of having them here with us and having the labors that only they can do with children and, and with the church itself? labors that are blessed to the Lord Jesus Christ. But I have to praise the Lord, and I think you women all say amen with me on this, that there are so many men and young men in this church, and so I rejoice in it. Last week I spoke to you about heaven and its ever-increasing joys that... Uh, and I did it especially in reference to the portion in uh, Revelation 19.11 where it says that the, I saw heaven opened and I talked of the opened heaven <clears throat> and how blessed it is to know that there are ever-increasing joys in heaven. Heaven is not a static condition. Oh, I, I hope you'll realize that. We, we get a little taste down here because of the Holy Spirit. It's been well said that a little faith will take you to heaven, but a great faith brings heaven to your soul. And so we have a little taste of heaven down here. For instance, the verse that says, I hath not seen nor ear heard the glories 
which God hath prepared for them that love him does not stop there, although I do hear a lot of men stop at that point. It goes on and says, but the Holy Spirit has revealed them unto us so that we have a taste, you see. The world doesn't understand. And we've tasted just a little bit of heaven because Christ himself has come to dwell in our hearts by faith. And he is heaven, you see. He is heaven. He'll be there in that place he's preparing for us. But he brings that taste of heaven to our soul and speaks to us through his Holy Spirit day by day. And so I spoke to you last week about those ever-increasing joys that just getting to heaven is not everything. It's just the beginning. When you get there, you have an eternity. And, you know, for you to even think with our minds, which are finite, of what this means is an impossibility because you cannot possibly think, no matter how great your imagination may be, you cannot possibly think of how for all eternity, and the word itself defies explanation, it defies explanation, that for all eternity you'll be filled with the joy of the Lord. You know, you have your ups and downs on earth, you see. But to know that up there no sin enters, no abominable thing, no pain, no sin, no disease, no death, no crying, as we're told in the last part of Revelation. And to know that when we get there, there's going to be an eternity to enjoy Jesus Christ and to enjoy the universe, if I might say, that he has made for us. I would remind you that it was made for us and for Christ. For we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ, you see, of everything that he has made. I would remind you that he didn't just make the earth, he made the worlds in plural, that it all came from him. And so there is an eternity to enjoy with him. I hath not seen, that, that's sure, and ear hath not heard the glories which God hath prepared for them that love him. Uh, all of the beauties that we see are as nothing compared to what we're going to see one day when we see Jesus face to face and go on a celestial tour and the tour could never end. You know, science tells me that space is exploding faster than the speed of light. Well, now even this is inconceivable. At 186,000 miles per second, I find that a little difficult in my own mind. But that's what science says. They believe it's an exploding or expanding universe and that there is no end to it. It's just going all the time further and further. So people wonder, well, what am I going to get to when I explore it all? Well, I guess you'll never explore it all because there's so much to be seen. Heaven itself will take a long time. And I'm not just interested in scenic things. I want to, I want to talk with the men that really taught me in, the, in this book, you see. And I think this is the key. We're going to see the saints of God. Thrills me. I'm going to see Adam and Eve. That really thrills me because, you know, that's a place where science gets all mixed up. But I am so thankful that one day I'll see Adam and Eve. And I'll know what it meant when it said, in Adam all die, but in Christ all shall be made alive. So, beloved, this is the, the, the ever-expanding joys. It's not just getting there that uh, is the key. It's to know that when we get there, it's just the beginning. We're new creatures in Christ. And when we see him face to face, it's just the beginning 
of joy. I don't know how long it will take us when we get to glory just to look upon Christ and to see those nail-pierced hands and to know that he suffered for us. I guess just to bask in his love. If you have basked in the love of some other human being, (coughs) pardon me, on earth, you know what I mean. There are times of basking just in love, isn't it? No words need be spoken. Certainly a husband and wife or lovers or those who are contemplating one day being together for, in marriage, certainly there are those moments when you just bask in love and it's quietness. It's the consciousness of the other soul's presence with you. No words are necessary. I'm sure that you understand that if you're in love. You certainly don't need a feast or a great place of banqueting to enjoy each other. You could uh, just take a walk together hand in hand and not say a word and, and be truly, truly blessed of God and know the consciousness of the love, you see, that's there. This, this is the glory of love. And I can't imagine when I see the Savior just to bask in his presence, my bridegroom and the bride, his church, each of us individual, incidentally, in his presence. And so this is, this is what the true church now, I'm not talking to the, to the great bulk of, uh, of the church, I'm talking to the true church, I'm talking to the born-again Christians who are going to see Christ face to face. I want to talk about that a little bit this morning because that's, a theme that I think is so important to our hearts. I spoke to you last week of those who will see Christ, who will get to heaven, and uh, that is a tremendous area to cover. I didn't cover it all, but I touched upon it. Now, when the church is caught up to be with Christ, which is far better, like our dear brother Steve, absent from the body, present with the Lord, Whether I live or I die, I belong to Christ. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. All these things, you see, have been fulfilled for Steve Rowland because he's in the presence of Jesus Christ. But when the church is caught up to be with its head, the church which is the bride of Christ, then there'll be a great ecumenical body left behind. And, of course, when you hear that word ecumenical, be very careful. I love the word ecumenical when it is talking of those who are really in Jesus Christ and bound together in love, you see. But the word today is used in a different sense entirely, and the word ecumenical today covers the organized church throughout the world. In other words, there is a great movement going on at the present time to bring together the different bodies of the church, to bring together, and it is stemming much of it, if I might say, from Romanism. We must never forget that. This is not something Protestantism has taken hold of. This is something that Romanism has had on its heart for centuries. Never forget that, that Romanism for centuries has had on its heart the final merging together of all Christian bodies into one great church. 
And this is that which would be ecumenical. Now, by that I do not mean that if a church body is a member of that ecumenical movement, and there are many Baptist churches that are, that's why I want to be clear here, that it means that every church that joins it, all the people in it are lost. Of course, that's not true. Since salvation is individual and has nothing to do with Franklin Avenue Baptist Church or any other church in all the world, but has only to do with that personal faith in Jesus Christ that has redeemed your soul, and you are the only one in all the earth that knows it. In other words, you possess it. Your wife would not know if her husband is saved. Only you know. You could act out the part. You could come to church on Sunday and sit in a pew and go through all the motions. But this has nothing to do with salvation. Throughout this land today, there'll be some, oh, possibly, I understand, 60 or 70 million people might get into a church somewhere. Of that group... Only God knows those that are redeemed in all the churches. In every church there are wheat and tares. Franklin Avenue Baptist, because it has a good witness for Jesus Christ, because the preacher who stands in the pulpit happens to believe the word of God from cover to cover and preach the gospel and believe that Jesus saves unto the uttermost all that come unto God by him, still doesn't mean that everybody in Franklin Avenue Baptist is headed for heaven. Only the individuals know that. And you have to know it. These things were written that she might know, 1 John 5, that she have eternal life, and that eternal life is in Jesus Christ, God's Son. Know it. You have to know it. And so when the church has been caught up to be with Christ, then there will be left behind a great ecumenical body, if I might say, a spiritual Babylon, for that's what it is. In Revelation 17, when God's wrath is cast upon the church, that which is destroyed is the church ecumenical. It is the spiritual body. You will see it spoken of there. I'm not going to go into that portion right now, but it is the church that the wrath is brought upon them. And it is not, incidentally, <clears throat> brought upon them by God himself. But nations and the Antichrist are driven to bring all of their wrath upon the church that is left at that time. May I say this? There'll be good reason for that because the church has deceived them and they've been left behind in the rapture. They've been left behind. Here is still a religious body on earth after the church is caught up. Some buildings will be just as crowded as before because no gospel was preached. No one was ever saved in the church. And so after the church has been caught up, There'll be the buildings still packed. I don't know what the people are going to say to them when the church has been raptured out. 
But that's the beginning of the great tribulation and God helped the earth at that time for Jesus says little flesh shall live on the face of the earth in those days unless those days be shortened. And so I just want to speak to you this morning if I can just about that church of the last days. Now I've spoken to you about the church in many places in its relationship to the last days. But this morning I wanted to especially mention that in the book of Revelation, and if you will turn with me to Revelation, the third chapter. Revelation, the third chapter. There is there recorded in the second and third chapter the history of the church. There are seven churches mentioned. Those seven churches appear in two ways. Number one, they appear chronologically. In other words, it begins with Ephesus. And that might be the foundation for all of the rest of the failures because Ephesus was a good church, but it had left its first love. And basically that is what happens in churches where there is a lack of discernment of the way to be saved. I love that word saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's a word that comes into disrepute in many churches. But how precious it is to know that there is salvation when the gospel is preached. But the seven churches mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3 are chronologically put so that Ephesus would take care of the first group of the church from that first century on, and then we come to each one until we get up to the last one, which is Laodicea. Also, these seven churches would exist at any one time. You would be able to find all of those different seven churches somewhere upon the face of the earth at any time. But chronologically, Laodicea is the last church on earth. And that church, of all the churches now that Christ mentions in Revelation 2 and 3, is the most wicked and the deadest having no life in it. So that it fits in with all the rest of prophecy. It has to. It has to fit in to Timothy where Timothy says, in the last days evil teachers shall come in unawares and teach what damnable heresies. It has to fit in with Christ's words that there will be a falling away. It has to fit in with coldness in part has come to the hearts of individuals. It has to fit into all of the prophetic utterances. You remember Peter says that no prophecy is given for private interpretation. The word private here actually has been misused by the Roman church. The Roman church took that portion and said, therefore, you are not to privately read the Bible. Anything you read, therefore, the Douay version has all the notes down the bottom of the Bible. You are to be guided, no private interpretation. But the word itself there where, where Peter says, no prophecy is given by Private interpretation is isolated interpretation. In other words, all prophecy must match 
There are teachers who grab one little portion of the Word of God, take it out, and build it up into a sect. But the whole body of Scripture is to be studied so that we know that what we finally come up with is so glorious because God has to agree with everything in his word so that the prophecies that Paul speaks of and the prophecies that Ezekiel speaks of and the prophecies that Isaiah speaks of and the prophecies that we might go into John and the book of Revelation and all of the different books must fit together. And so there is this glorious, glorious knowledge that we have so that we as Christians can understand what is coming and the church at Laodicea is the church of the last days. After the church is dealt with, incidentally, in Laodicea, it is not seen again on earth. Revelation 4.1 says a door was opened into heaven so that the church is not again seen on earth. The next time we see the church, it's coming with its Savior in Revelation 19 in his army, you see. It's been raptured out. It's been taken out. And so after he finishes with Laodicea, the door is open to heaven. And John says, then he saw all of these visions which he had, all the prophetic utterances which came. And then the church is only seen when it is seen coming back with its Savior in Revelation 19, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, as we read in Timothy this morning, the only high potentate over all the earth, and it says that he's on a white horse and all of his armies do follow him and then the final judgment of God comes upon the earth and the establishment of the millennial kingdom. But Laodicea is the last church that is spoken of. Laodicea means, and this has struck me, the rule of the people. It strikes me because of what I hear in the world today. Power to the people! And what's happening in the world is happening in churches. So that the preacher in the pulpit is under the control of the people. And the preacher in the pulpit is not a man called of God to preach as God directs him in the power of the Holy Spirit, but he is a man in the pulpit who is held in his place by the people. And if he preaches something, and I can tell you that this is absolute truth, if he preaches something on the blood of Christ or salvation, the trustees and deacons meet with him after and say, you better lay low on that kind of stuff. I have preachers that come to me and told me that they've gone into new churches, young men, and they've preached a message on Christ, and after the meeting, the deacons have called them in and said, now listen, we don't need that here. The rule of the people, not of the man called of God. What does Hebrews 13 say? And it's a very tender thing, so careful. It tells you to... What? Concerning those who have the rule over you. And this doesn't mean in any dictatorial fashion. It says, obey them that have the rule over you, for they must give account for your, what? Souls unto God. No dictatorial thing. But just obey the word. 
That's what it means. Obey the word. Do you hear the word from the pulpit on Sunday? Obey the word. Be ye not hearers of the word, but what? Doers of the word. And so there is to be in our hearts a consciousness that God has redeemed us in his precious blood. How precious this is this morning. Are you redeemed this morning? Do you really know Christ as your personal Savior? And when I say that, there isn't a doubt that flies into your heart, but there's a rejoicing that says, yes, I'm saved. I'm on the road to heaven. And how blessed that is, you see. This is real faith. This is faith that has no doubts. Now get this that has no doubts about salvation. I don't care if you doubt about some of the periphery issues that might come up, but don't you ever doubt about the blood of Jesus Christ and his power to cleanse you from sin. You may hear theologians argue about some points on different things in the Bible, but beloved, when they argue about the blood and the vicarious atonement of Jesus Christ and his bodily resurrection from the grave, I'd flee that church as fast as I could get out of it because that's the kind of a church that will be on earth after the church has been caught out because no gospel has been preached that will redeem the soul and make a man a new creature or a woman a new creature or a young person in Jesus Christ. And so there is to be this understanding of what the church of the last days is. Let's just, just read it together. You know, I can get launched into a, into a discussion of these things and then not read you the scripture. So I better read you the scripture now. 14th verse of third chapter. Remember now, six other churches have been already spoken of. And now we come to the last one. Seven is the number of perfection in the scriptures. Seven is the number of totality in the scriptures. God created the earth and the heavens in six days and the seventh day rested. No matter where you might look, you would find this is true. This is the seventh church. Unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness. Remember we read that in uh, Revelation 19. He that is faithful and true saith these things. Here he is, he's speaking, faithful and true. The beginning of the creation of God. Now notice, this is speaking to the church of the 20th century. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, notice God doesn't say it, they say it. Thou sayest, I am rich and increase with goods and I have need of nothing. And knowest not what self-deception, huh? That thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me Gold tried in the fire. And you know, that uh, buying there of gold tried in the fire, if I, you don't have to turn to this, but if I could just write this down, lest someone thinks you can purchase your salvation. Remember what Peter says, you were not redeemed with corruptible things such as what? Silver and gold. But with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. But let me read this to you, Isaiah 55, 1. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, 
Come ye to the waters. Who is the water of life? Huh? Jesus Christ. And he that hath no money, come ye, buy. That's a new way of buying, isn't it? Huh? Come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. You can't purchase it, see? Without money. And here the Lord has them understand. Now, you're, you're the merchants because Laodicea was a, a very wealthy city. It was a city of a purple uh, wool. And all of the merchants came through Laodicea. And these were people who were rich in goods, but they somehow mixed up their richness in goods with God's blessing. No, let's be very careful here. And because you have money doesn't make you spiritually blessed. May I make this clear? We're liable to mix it up, frankly. I have to say that because somehow we're prosperous and we go to church and we figure this works well together. No, it doesn't always work well together. I know people who have very, very little. Very little. And I have to say that spiritually, their little families are sometimes more tightly bound together in the things of Christ and in their devotional life at their table than churches, than people who have lots of money. Now, this isn't necessary, you see. This isn't necessary. But what I'm saying is that we must be very, very careful that the commercialism of the world doesn't ensnare us so that we devote all of our time to making money. All I can remember is that we're told you came into the world with what? Nothing, and you will leave with nothing. So men stew over the stock market. They stew over the economic condition of the world, and I have to say it's miserable. It's not pleasant, I know that. It's very rough. But we shouldn't if we realize that God has in his word destined us for a much higher destiny, a glorious destiny. The greatest riches of the universe are possessed not in the hand but in the soul. For the treasury of God is the Holy Spirit. And when he has given you the Holy Spirit through that wonderful faith in Jesus Christ, you are a rich man in the things of God. So we're to be careful that we don't become ensnared in this. This church of the last days is ensnared in commercialism. Big buildings. Everything has to be aesthetic and beautiful. And I'm glad the church looks nice. This thrills me. But I want to tell you, I'd rather preach in a little hut or a hovel if I had to than preach Christ and to be in the biggest cathedral in the world and have to preach something that was nothing to the souls of men. But we are liable to get involved with a commercialism. And here God is letting this church know, you say you're rich, you have need of nothing. But I tell you, you are miserable, you're blind, it's going to be hard to explain to these people, isn't it, that they're miserable, they're blind, they're naked. When they themselves look at themselves, thou sayest, 
thou art rich and I have much goods and I have all of this. You remember in the New Testament when Jesus speaks to the man and the man's going to pile up in his bonds. He says, I'm going to retire now. I have much goods. Put them all in my bonds and I'll sit back and take my ease and live. What is it about this retirement idea that gets people the idea they're going to enjoy life for long. Actuarial statistics say the average life of a pensioner now is three and a half years. But isn't it strange how we can be deluded, you know? If you live beyond that, you're fortunate. Steve Rowland got 10 years of retirement. And in those 10 years, made 9,500 visits to the hospital and won over 60 souls to Jesus Christ. That's hardly retirement. No man should retire unless he has to. And then when he has to, I know firms say 65, you're through. When he has to, then he should be retiring to serve God. He never should be retiring to just sit in a chair and rock himself till he dies. In all of Scripture, I would remind you, there's never a man who retires. Do you ever see the word retirement in the Bible? Moses and all these men of God died with their shoes on. And this is the way it is. But rich men... Sometimes they get confused and they have an idea that the fact that they're rich makes them spiritually well. Well, this is what God here is putting down, you see? He says, you say you're rich and you have much goods and you have need of nothing, but you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now, beloved, you know, it's well for us to search out our hearts sometimes, isn't it, you know? And see where we stand, you know? I, I read this here in the, in the paper, and it, it struck me. Because self-examination is good, to really see where you stand spiritually. I really feel sorry for men that are rich. I honestly do. You know why? Only for the fact that it takes so much time to manage your business. That's all. That's the only thing that would bother me. Men who have that which God has given them, an oversupply, and yet somehow, and I often think of uh, that man that we've had down here. Oh, we've had him preach from the pulpit here. Uh, Reman, no. Riesinger, Riesinger. I got it. Brother Riesinger, he thrills me. Great message, you've heard him. But here's a man who has a bar, large corporation. He isn't yet 50 years of age. And what does he do? He has his son manage it. He leaves. And for 12 months of the year, he travels and preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ and lets his son run the business. He says, all I want is a salary. He lives in the same house he had when he first started in business overjoyed. He says, I don't need a big mansion. 
and he just lives now to serve Jesus Christ. When he came here, he had to travel. He was out in California at that time. He had to travel here to bring a message, and I offered, well, we'll help you with the... He says, I don't want anything. He says, I don't need any money from anybody. God's given it to me. I just want to preach, that's all. But I couldn't help but think how we should search our hearts because we don't search our own hearts out to see where we stand concerning this thing. Have you felt, you know, because all is well in the family, this is a sign of God's blessing. It's not a sign of God's blessing. It's wonderful if God has blessed you with good health and this children are fine and all this and your wife and you get along good. This is great. I praise the Lord for that. That's a blessed thing. All Christians should have it this way. But that is not the sign of God's blessing. I can show you people in the world that have the same kind of families and they do very well and they get along nice together. The only difference is, beloved, our faith in Jesus Christ, that we have not been enamored of the world. That we haven't made the mistake of saying, I'm well off, and my bank accounts are good, and I have enough to get along on, because like that man of old, when he piled up his bonds, and then Jesus came to him and said, but thou fool, this night shall thy soul be required of thee. And then what shall these things be? You can't take it with you. What are you going to do? But I couldn't help but think when I read this of how this happens in the world. Just for instance, self-examination. Now listen to this. In San Francisco, a recent convention of physicians, the American Academy of Medicine, was checked. Of the 350 delegates, now these are doctors of the body, only four had had a complete physical checkup. You see how blind you can be? You know, you keep reading in the papers all the time, you know. You need a complete physical, do this, do that. And then here are the doctors. Only four out of 350 had had a complete che physical checkup. Now, how about us? You see, do we check ourselves spiritually? For instance, where God says they are miserable. He says, first there's the cold ones. He says, I would that you were cold or hot, you see. The cold ones are those that are completely indifferent to the gospel. You may have spoken to some of them and they just resist it completely and they don't care. It doesn't make a bit of difference. They're not interested in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't make any bones about letting you know. Just leave me alone. Well, don't get discouraged. Just keep praying for them too because I did that for 10 years. Kept shying people off. Leave me alone. I'm doing fine. I'm happy. Just don't bother me. Don't talk to me about Jesus Christ. But these are the absolutely cold ones. And God says, I would that you were cold or hot. In other words, if you're absolutely cold, there's a chance I might win you. Because you may reach out in great despair from your coldness when things come into your life and tragedies and burdens, and you may cry out in your sin to me, and I may redeem you. I would that you were cold or hot. If you're hot, and this word in hot in the Greek means boiling hot. If you're hot, you're on fire for me. You've really been saved. You're born again. You live it. You breathe it. 
And when Pastor again says, in him we live and breathe and have our being, you say, praise the Lord. I'm in Christ. That's the way I live and I breathe. My heart is set upon Jesus Christ. You're fervent for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, I would you were cold or hot. Hot, you're saved, and cold, you're lost. And I can do something with you. The lukewarm, he says, are the ones that I'm concerned about. And the reason for that is that they have a portion of religiosity and they go to church on Sunday and they go through all the rites and they even come to the Lord's table and they do everything else and they're just as lost as the cold. But I can't do anything with them because they happen to be sitting in pews and somehow they got an idea because they sit in a pew, they're all fine and okay. What does he say about the lukewarm? Notice what he says. Sixteenth verse, So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Are you in love with your wife this morning? your husband. Who wants a tepid love? Hmm? Who wants a tepid love? Who wants a lukewarm love? Is there anything more insipid? You want a fervent love. You want a passionate love. You want to be filled to overflowing with love not lukewarm. The lukewarm are the middle of the roaders. The lukewarm are, say, who are those who say, well, I can take my religion or leave it. Well, it is religion. Let's make sure we understand that it's not Christ. The lukewarm are those who say, I never talk about my Christianity. The lukewarm are the straddlers. The lukewarm are those who are churchianity. They come to church on Sunday and it's forgotten on Monday. The lukewarm is a profession that lacks reality, and only you and I know whether it's real. A Christianity that's picked up on Sunday and laid off on Monday and let down is not the kind of Christianity that God's interested in. Let me be frank. Jesus says, and it's Jesus speaking, I want you to, re- to notice this, I would you were cold or hot. If you're cold, I can do something with you because you're outside, you're completely outside the church. You have no interest and there's possibilities with you. But if you're lukewarm, I have problems because somehow you've got an idea because you go to Franklin Avenue Baptist Church and because Pastor Gian is a gospel preacher and because you sit in the pew, that's it. But you're lukewarm about your faith and I want to tell you something, you really don't have me in your heart at all. You just go and that's it. And because you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. I can't take it. It is nauseating to the heart of God to have a soul who's lukewarm. If I'm a bride, let me act like a bride. And not a playmate. We play at church. 
And I warn you, this is the last church. This is the 20th century church. This is the church at Laodicea. This is that church that God is speaking to. He says, you're lukewarm. You've gotten involved with your riches and your possessions and the world and you're a straddler and you make all sorts of compromises in your Christian faith. You don't stand the ground. You're not living like you did two years or five years or ten years ago. You're indicating that the new birth never really happened in your heart. You've played with it and you've been touched by the Holy Spirit. You've been dealt with. You know the fundamental doctrines of the faith, but it never has sunk into your heart. It has been a mental ascent to a nice organization and a nice church with a nice building and all the rest. And you're associated with it and you hear the message, but you're lukewarm. And I want to say this to you. I, God help me. When I say these words, it, it crushes me. Jesus says, I, will spew you out of my mouth. It nauseates me that you can talk about me and being a Christian. You have a name to live, but you're dead. Now we judge ourselves. We judge ourselves. You judge yourself. You have to judge where you stand. I, I'm sure there's no cold ones here this morning. I don't think you'd be here if you were absolutely cold. Instead. Cold people just don't want to hear a thing. You meet them. Madeline Murray, and she's, you know, she's, a, she's down in the refrigerator way down low. But then there's the medium colds too. You know? I mean, that you meet outside and they don't want anything to do with the church. The church is a corrupt organization. All it wants is your money. You know, all this stuff. You hear this all the time, you know? The cold are outside. What Jesus is concerned with primarily are the lukewarm. Because he said, you've been coming to church and you've been listening to messages. You've been going through all of this, but it never touches your heart. It never reaches the point where you really say, Lord Jesus, I need you in my soul. I want to know that I'm redeemed in the blood of Jesus Christ. I want to have it so deep in my heart that I can walk and understand your words when you say to me, Receive ye my joy that your joy might be, what? Full. That's the new birth, you see. That's the new birth. That's the coming to Christ. That's the finding him as personal savior so that it bubbles up within the soul and cannot be held down. You love him with all your heart. Oh, listen. Don't be lukewarm. Don't be like those doctors, you know. Only four of them had ever had an examination. You could sit here this morning, you know, there's... There were 350, well, there's 400 and some odd here this morning, see? I hope there would be more than four that would examine themselves. Do you find that conceivable? 350, and most of these, they said, were specialists in certain fields, and they hadn't had any examinations themselves. Here we are, specialists in the things of Christ. We love him. Have you examined your heart to see whether it's really hot. The word in the Greek is zest, meaning boiling hot. Boiling hot. 
Listen, young men, God is looking for boiling hot young men that have a little fire in their souls. He's looking for us to have that fire in our souls. The cold outside are looking, but I want to tell you there's not a lukewarm Christian in this place that will ever talk to a cold person on the outside. The only ones who do the talking are the hot. Steve was a boiling hot Christian. I pray to the Lord I might be a boiling hot Christian. Oh, God, forgive me when I fail you in the preaching of the gospel of Jesus in any way to a stranger or to someone we meet and somehow we pass the time of day and God even opens opportunities and we shut the doors. God help us. Thou sayest, I am rich and filled with goods and have need of nothing, but I say unto you, you are wretched and miserable and blind and naked. How can a, you can picture that man sitting in the church and look, how can you say this about me? Look at me, God. How can you say I'm wretched and miserable and blind and naked? And God says, will you remember something? I don't look on outward things. I look upon the heart. And certainly as you sit here before me this morning, you all look so nice, dressed, dressed in your, it, you know, I used to be able to say that, dressed in your Sunday best. But you all look so nice, dressed in your Sunday best, to come to the Lord's house. But I want to tell you, God's looking upon that heart of yours and mine. And oh, I'm praying one thing for everybody here. He finds a heart that is hot for him, that isn't compromising that's not straddling, that's not in any sense one foot in the world and one foot in heaven. In the world when it feels good and in heaven when it feels good. No, both feet planted on what? The rock, right? The rock which is Christ. And then living for Jesus. God give you a hot heart, if I can use that, for Jesus Christ. A passionate love, an overflowing love that reaches out to others, that the cold may be saved. They'll never get saved until the church is on fire for Jesus Christ. When I first read that word there, and I conclude with this, you know, that it would be cold or hot. And, and of course, you know, whenever you use that word hot, you think, boy, I have to use that carefully. But I want to tell you, I don't want to be careful about this. I want you to be boiling hot for Jesus Christ. And then God will fill your heart with a joy. Are you missing the joy of the Lord? Are you? Well, begin to set your gaze on things above. Set your affections on things above where Christ dwells. And whatsoever things are pure and lovely and of good report, think on these things and then go forth for Christ. Go forth for Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank Thee for Thy precious Word, blessed to our hearts. Lord, we ask Thee above all else that there'll be none lukewarm here this morning. Lord, make us deeply conscious that Thou art speaking here 
And we dread the words when it says, because thou art lukewarm, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Rejection. Lord, to think that it nauseates the heart of God when a person pretends to be a Christian, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Lord Jesus, how we pray this morning that everyone here will be truly born again, that they really have received Christ in their heart as their personal Savior, and that no one will leave without him. Father, we pray for every individual, and we're not saying this because we're Baptists. We just ask thee, Lord, that if there are any this morning who have yet to find Christ, right now in their hearts they'll be taking him as their personal Savior. Lord, we ask thee above everything else that Christ will be glorified in what we have said and that the burning desire of our hearts will be to burn for Jesus Christ. I'm just going to give you the opportunity. I'm not going to ask you to come forward and then I'll close. If anyone would like to say, Pastor, here's my hand this morning. I want Christ in my heart. Just put it up high. I won't ask you to come forward. Just put it up high. Yes, yes, I see that hand. Anyone else? Put your hand up. Say, Pastor, pray for me. Here's my hand for Jesus Christ. Yes, I see your hand. God bless you. Anyone else to join these? Yes, I see your hand. God bless you. Just put your hand up. Say, Pastor, again, pray for me. Pray for me. Oh, how I long. How I long for this. No lukewarmness, but a real Christian in love with Jesus Christ. If you haven't been born again, if you haven't received Christ, why not do it now, right now, to join these? Anyone else? Quickly, hand up. Pastor, pray for me. Anyone else? Just as I... Yes, I see your hand. God bless you. God bless you. Anyone else? I don't want to close while hands are going up. I won't ask you to come forward but I just want to pray for you. Anyone else to join these who put their hands up for Christ? Quickly, just as I close. One second. Are you saying, oh, God, give me courage to put my hand up? Well, go ahead, put it up. No one's looking. It's just between you and God. Quickly. One second, and then I close. Anyone else? Anywhere? Now, Lord, we thank thee for these that have raised their hands for Jesus Christ. And we pray that thou wouldst truly touch their hearts, that they might grow in grace in the knowledge of him who loved them and gave himself for them. We're thankful that Christ's death on the cross is the means of our redemption, that he takes all our sins and bears them in his own body on the tree. And, O oh, Father, we pray this day that these who have raised their hands will have that glorious and wonderful joy of seeing themselves burning in their love for the Savior who has redeemed them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And all the people of God said, Amen.